according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent, be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Matthew chapter 20 is our passage today. Very well-known passage, one that uh, I always enjoy. Uh, Every time I read it, it blesses me, and I enjoy the principles that are found herein, and it almost teaches itself. By the time you get to, uh, you you don't even have to read all 16 verses. Just get uh, down to verse 8, and you got the whole point of the whole story, and then uh, the rest of it kind of teaches itself. But there's uh, there are some uh, important principles here, and we'll see. I expect this will be a single session episode. Last time I said that, though, we took four sessions to teach an episode. Less than 35, the 11th hour laborers, Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to assure that we are uh, filled with the Holy Spirit and distractions are set aside. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing that we have to assemble together. This is a grace provision. Father, we thank you for making it possible. Thank you for the finances and work schedules and transportation and all the other circumstances and details of life that you coordinated, allowing us to assemble together to receive instruction. We pray for a hedge of protection, Father, that you would shepherd us and hedge us about, hinder any from coming in here to bring us to harm. Father, um, we just thank you for being faithful. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. I keep thinking about last night was the deadline, and we haven't gotten any updates uh, for the pastor we were praying for in Pakistan uh, that was going to try to get out of Pakistan last night. And we, As of this morning, I checked email five minutes ago, still haven't seen any, any follow-up to that. So that continues to be a prayer item. All right, Matthew chapter 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And uh, let me back up because it's it's rather unfortunate that we have a chapter division here. Uh, We've been dealing with the rich young ruler and his approach, which was a law approach. If I'm good enough, I can get there. And Jesus pointed out that none of us are good enough to get there. We all have something that's going to keep us from uh, qualifying on the Father's standard of perfection. For the rich young ruler, it was the pride that he had over his wealth. For you and I, maybe it's a different issue, but nevertheless, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So regardless uh, of what our hang-ups are, none of us qualify for the perfection of God's glory. Uh, The disciples, though, were a little confused and and, uh, not exactly following along with what the Lord was teaching. And so in that venue, as is quite often the case, the uh, the Father assigns our, our Lord to go to a parable mode whereby teaching can take place to reinforce a principle through the device of the uh, of the storytelling and that's what we have here but you notice after he says uh, it's easier for the rich man to uh, or for the camel to go through the eye of a needle and for the rich man to enter the kingdom of God um, this produces astonishment in the disciples well who can be saved and then the last detail we were dealing with a week ago uh, Peter and the others were saying, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And again, much of what we're seeing here is dealing with the issues the disciples are having. Clearly, they're having objectivity issues. And uh, so often is the case. Uh, their subjectivity uh, causes them to 
uh, not exactly understand what he's getting across or what is he teaching. And uh, we see this time and time again. But at the end of that message, and when we, we ran out of time last week, you'll notice many who are the first will be last and the last first. And that formed not only the conclusion to last week's message, but the introduction to this week's message. In fact, you'll spot it again in verse 16 of chapter 20. So the last shall be first and the first last. And it uh, swaps the order on it, but it's the same message either way you want to say it. So uh, it's kind of interesting, and I'll just give this to you now, and then we'll go back and take a look at the text. But the inversion of first and last, the inversion of first and last, it frames the whole story. It frames the kingdom of heaven parable of the 11th hour laborers. All right, so you'll notice Matthew 19:30 and Matthew chapter 20 and verse 16. Those two verses frame, it's like a sandwich, it's like uh, uh, the, the bookends, as it were. And in between those two statements is this parable that we're looking at here today. So this is point one in the outline, if you are following and keeping the outline. The inversion of first and last frames the kingdom of heaven parable of the 11th hour laborers. That's the message, that's the point. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. And then it's um, reversed in its order in chapter 20, verse 16. So the last shall be first, and the first last. So it doesn't matter which way you take it, the truth is still the truth, and the principle is there. That things don't always run the way we think they ought to run, according to our human wisdom, according to our understanding. Alright? So, let's look at the story now. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went again. He went out about the sixth and ninth hour. And did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day long? And they said to him, Because no one hired us. And he said to them, You go into the vineyard too. So when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. And this is the the twist to the story, the shock to the story, because the denarius is what the first crowd was hired for. When those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they grumbled at the landowner. All right. And they got no business grumbling because the denarius is what they agreed to. Saying these last men have worked only one hour. Remember, it's a 12 hour day. We'll, we'll break down the, the clock on this and spell it all out for you. But these last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am so generous? rhetorical question answer it yourself it's self-answering it is uh already answered by virtue of the one who is doing the asking uh so the conclusion again in verse 16 the last shall be first and the first 
last. So what we see here again, like we did last week, the inversion of first and last. And uh, what often flies in the face of our human wisdom. In our human wisdom, we're accustomed to the way the world works. Uh, you know, first come, first serve. Uh, first one there, and there's advantages, and there's uh, benefits to being uh, the first, to being the oldest, to being uh, uh, in seniority in the workplace, or having um, what have you. It's always, in the human realm, um, preferable to have that experience or to have that seniority. Uh, not always the case in God's plan. And oftentimes uh, he chooses the younger to, uh, to be exalted and the older shall serve the younger. We see that in a variety of different uh, contexts and applications. We also find that uh, God, uh, as uh, we saw last week in the conclusion, as the, uh, in Isaiah, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And so we want to start to embrace God's wisdom when he puts a plan into effect and not just simply assume, well, this is, uh, this is the way it normally works. All right. This is the way it ought to work. Let's not confuse normal with, uh, <laughs> with God's plan. All right. Because God is anything but normal. God and his wisdom is, um, perfect. So how do you describe perfect as normal <laughs> when it comes right down, right down to it? So we have the inversion here. All right. Back for the details then. The early, I'm going to call these guys the early morning laborers. The early morning laborers. Or I can call them the whiners. Okay? Because at the end of the story, they're the ones that are grumbling. They're the ones that are going to probably form a labor union. Uh, by which they can go on strike and protest the uh, through uh, try to force some kind of collective bargaining into the process. Um, the early morning laborers agreed to do one day's work for one day's pay. Matthew chapter 20 and verse 2. They agreed for a denarius. When he agreed with the laborers for a denarius, the denarius was the um, denomination, the coinage of the day, which was equal to a single day's pay. That was the standard pay scale for a laborer. One denarius. A day's uh, worth of honest labor was worth a denarius. That was the economy of scale. The Greek term denarion is uh, not really even Greek, to be honest. It's simply the Greek uh, translation of a Latin term. The Latin is the denarius. Uh, the Greeks had different coinage. The drachma, for example, D-R-A-C-H-M-A, the drachma was the equivalent of the denarius. It was comparable in size and silver content. And uh, so they were often interchangeable. A Greek drachma would be the equivalent of a Roman denarius. Um, if you want another uh, comparison, it takes 6,000 denarii to equal one talent. Many of the, um, uh, well, the parable of the talents and other stories in Scripture dealing with talents. There you are. Here's the different coinage that is featured in the Gospels, in the New Testament records, specifically the Gospels. The, uh, t the tiniest little coin imaginable was the leptin, or in plural, lepta, neuter plural term, lepta. This is what the widow gave in her the widow's might. She gave two lepta, two little uh, lepton coins, of which it takes 128 of them to equal a denarius. It's the tiny little penny as far as uh, the King James translation is concerned, or a mite 
as far as the old King James goes. Uh, quadrons is another Latin uh, coin worth a uh, 64th of a denarius. The, the as or the aserion, usually it's just abbreviated AS, um, was worth a 16th of a denarius. By the way, the, the, the cash value on the right-hand column, I ignore all those. Um, there's different studies on those, and it all is uh, pretty ridiculous, especially in our day and age where it seems that currency values are rising and falling and, and uh, metal values. You can evaluate it. Any of these you can evaluate in terms of both the, the precious metal value, the content of the coinage, or the purchasing power. You know, what exactly does, you know, what do you get for a day's wages today as opposed to a day's wages back then? You know, is 25 bucks, is that... Uh, truly an equivalent of a day's ra- wage. Would a laborer expect to earn 25 bucks in uh, in 12 hours of labor? Um, so I, I tend to ignore the right-hand column there on, on charts like this. But the uh, left column and the center column are good because they give you the, the equivalencies, the ratios, uh, the relationship between uh, between them. You'll notice the uh, denarius equals the drachma because the didrachma, the two-drachma coin, is equal to... Uh, two denarii. So that gives you the equivalent one drachma equals one denarius. The stator uh, was a double double drachma, so it was four drachma or four denarii. That's the coin that uh, uh, when Peter threw the net in, uh, the fish, the hook in and pulled a fish out and found the stator in the fish's mouth, uh, that was going to be the equivalent of the taxes for both Jesus and Peter in that uh, particular story, which we probably haven't covered yet. I think that's still future coming up in the in the life of Christ. Um, the shekel, uh, equivalent to the stator, and then the mina was worth 100 denarii, and then, of course, the talent. The talent was a huge sum of money, in fact, so much so that uh, people that function in that realm of economics are going to be uh, kings, uh, nation-states, princes, uh, conquering generals, and so forth. Talents would be the measure of economy that, uh, you know, your average carpenter on the street, work-a-day work kind of guy, wouldn't even function in realms of talents. Uh, but nation-states would, kings would, princes would, conquering generals, generals would, and, uh, and so forth. The equivalent of 6,000 denarii. All right. So here's their agreement. And it seems like a fair agreement. If a denarius is uh, equ- equivalent to a day's wages, uh, and they are agreeing to a day of labor then it seems to be to be a pretty legitimate salary. Okay? And we don't know how many laborers there are. They're ergotai, workers. Uh, there's no numbers associated with any of the um, 6 a.m. crowd, the 9 a.m. crowd, the noon crowd. Um, broken down into a 12-hour day, this is according to Roman reckoning, then it's sun up to sundown, equivalent, uh, broken down into, uh, functionally we could describe them as, as uh, the 12 hours of daylight, say from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And uh, we'll just use that as a uh, working number here for today. All right. As the story unfolds, we're introduced to these additional groups, the third hour, sixth hour, and ninth hour laborers. The third hour laborers, the sixth hour laborers, and the ninth hour laborers. They are going to be working proportionally smaller days. They're going to be working a three-quarter day, a half day, and a quarter day. But notice, none of them stipulate the wages. The owner doesn't stipulate it with them, and they don't insist on any kind of agreement before they start their work. It's only the first group that has a covenant. 
It's only the first group that enters into an agreement, a covenant or contractual basis. And we use the term covenant and contract interchangeably because they are interchangeable. All right, but it's only the first group that has a stipulated covenant that they agree to. In which case, of course, on a conditional basis of a two-party covenant, uh, each side has the obligations to meet. The workers have the obligation to work the period of time they're contracted for, and the landowner has the obligation to pay the uh, the agreed-upon amount. In which case, it's a 12-hour day, and it's a denarius at the end of the day. These other groups, we see it in verse 4, we see it in verse 5. Um, so it goes out about the third hour. And he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. All right. Now, there's probably more detail that we would be curious about that we would want to know. Um, and the, the text doesn't tell us because, first of all, it's a parable, so it's not a real story anyway. But then secondly, if it, if it was important to make the point, we would know. It's not important to make the point. What's the point? The last shall be first, the first shall be last. The point being is that order does not, seniority does not necessarily mean um, greater reward. Likewise, longevity does not necessarily mean greater reward. And that's something else we'll detail when we get to the application of things. Um, but it goes out about the third hour. So, you know, how many did he hire at the start of the day? And if there were others there at the time, why didn't he hire more? Does he need more work done? Um, does he get? Does the landowner get three hours into the day, or the foreman? We're not even introduced to the foreman until pay time. But the foreman here, uh, maybe three hours into it, says, "You know what? Uh, these guys are kind of slugs. <laughs> Think we can go get some more uh, to help what these guys are doing, or you know, we're going to be in trouble at six o'clock. Whatever the case, we don't know." But the landowner goes out, the Lord goes out, and, uh, and gets some more at the third hour. And uh, he sees them standing idle in the marketplace. And so whatever the case, if he needed more originally, he didn't hire them. Maybe they weren't there. Okay. I read a lot of commentaries that felt that these guys were slugs because they weren't there at 6 o'clock. That they overslept or they slept in. and they uh, Well, the text doesn't tell us that. All right. Maybe they weren't there at 6 o'clock or what have you. Maybe they were, but the, the owner didn't think he needed to hire so many. He hired a set number. And it was only three hours into the deal that he found out what slugs they were and, and uh, you know, union workers. And so he said, okay, let's go get some non-union guys and <laughs> try to uh, see if we can get this work done for the day. But the point being, we don't know any of those details, so it's all speculation. But he says, you also, you also, and that shows... That they're working together. It's not a separate project. They're going to join the first group. You also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. Whatever is right. And the standard of righteousness, the standard of dikaios, what is absolutely right and good and fair. And they agree to this. How do we know they agree to this? Because they went. It says, and so they went. They went forward. They obeyed the command to go. They went forward. They Went, started working, and they worked for nine hours, and they did so on the basis of what is right. Okay, And is it their interpretation of what is right, or is it the Lord's interpretation of what is right? They are willing to leave themselves in the Lord's hands for his standard of what is right. And this is a wonderful pattern. If, if you get nothing else out of this whole session, this is the point of the, of the parable here at this stage. Is do you want to function on a basis of works 
for what you can earn and deserve on a pre-approved contract basis, or do you want to simply function out of obedience and leaving yourself in the Lord's hands for whatever he determines is right? And that's the contrast between group one and the other five groups or four groups of the story. So there's the third hour laborers, and they're going to work a three-quarter day. There's the sixth hour laborers. They're going to work half a day. And you would think, well, half a day, they ought to get half a day's pay, right? They ought to get half of a denarius or half of a, you know, they ought to get eight Assyrians. Um And then the ninth hour, well, they only worked, you know, a quarter of the day. They worked three hours. So they ought to, you know, get a proportionally less amount. See, well, that's with a normal way of thinking. But keep in mind, we're not dealing with normal. We're dealing with the Father and His perfection and His glory and His wisdom. And much of what the Father deals with is His grace. His grace. All right? And uh, that's a big part of what we're learning in this context. All right, now, uh, again, He went out about the sixth hour. Again, He went out about the ninth hour. Now, why does He keep going back out? You know, are these the changes that, you know, they find the foreman saying, you know, we need more, we need more, we need more? Um did he originally intend to go get some more anyway? Uh, does he keep going out because every time he goes out, he sees there's more and more coming to the marketplace? And the details, again, we don't know. Uh, these these uh, sixth-hour guys, they showed up at noon. What kind of slugs are they? <laughs> you know, were they so drunk from the night before that they finally stumbled out of bed and crawled over the marketplace at noon just to see if there's any kind of work going on? All right, we don't know. Here's another possibility. What if, and here's the other possibility, um, you know, with day laborers, what if they had a previous job they were on? What if yesterday's job went long? And so they, they did a full day yesterday, and they didn't have to go to the marketplace this morning to try to get another contract, another deal, because they still had work left over from yesterday. And so they finished a day and a half worth of work. And then, because they're so industrious, because they're so uh, eager, instead of just going home and blowing off the rest of the half day, they went out to the marketplace just to see if they could grab another six hours or something. Okay, So they may not be drunken slugs showing up at noon. They may be, uh, they may be high achievers, go-getters, that wrapped up a job that was a day and a half or whatever and then went to see if they could pull some overtime, went to see, yeah, went to see if they can get another... Another deal. So, uh, again, I'm just throwing out possibilities because when you read the commentaries, I think there's a lot of assuming going on where assumptions being made, you know, where they assume that uh, that these sixth hour guys are just a bunch of slugs. And then the ninth hour guys, what were they doing? Again, I think it's quite likely that they had a previous job they wrapped up from the day before and worked three quarters of this day. And uh, and rather than just simply take a third of the day off or a fourth of the day off, felt, uh, hey, here's an opportunity to, uh, to get some more. Then we get to the 11th hour laborers. I'm convinced these guys are slugs. <laughs> but before we get to that, let's give you the subpoints on three. First of all, when you're dealing with these incremental laborers, subpoint A, these laborers were not party to the original covenant. These laborers are not party to the original covenant covenant they weren't there at 6 a.m they didn't enter into the agreement they didn't they didn't partake partake in the 
12-hour day expectation or in the one denarius expectation. They're not party to the covenant. They are simply leaving themselves into the standard of righteousness. They're not party to the original covenant. Point B. These laborers, but notice, they participate alongside the original covenant laborers. So they're going to they're perform similar work or identical work. These laborers participate in labors alongside the original covenant laborers. Oh, I need to reword that. That's too many laborers. They work alongside, but they have no assurances. They have no assurance beyond the landowner's standard of righteousness. And I think this is what often gets ignored. Um, There is much more to the story besides group A and then the 11th hour, the one hour guys that just showed up, worked an hour and got a full day's pay. There's these guys in between as well. Okay. And dispensationally, um, symbolically, there, there is a, this, this is representing an awful lot that we want to start to uh, try to approach. I think a better understanding of this, by the way, is going to identify uh, features of um, Israel and the church, features of dispensationalism, that if more and more people identified it accordingly, it would solve an awful lot. I think it would do away with replacement theology. I think it would also answer a lot of people that that work as hard as they can to try to figure out how the church fits into into the new covenant. All right. Because uh, I think it's much simpler and much better to say the church does not fit into the new covenant. Right? The Abrahamic covenant was with Israel, the Davidic covenant was with Israel, the Palestinian covenant was with Israel, the uh, new covenant is with Israel. Jeremiah 31, 31, the house of Israel, the house of Judah, where's the church in that? First Corinthians tells us that we are, or Second Corinthians tells us that we are ministers of the new covenant. And that's entirely different than being party to the new covenant. And to me, um, where, where dispensational churches go wrong is they keep trying to plug the church into the covenant somewhere. And even if they do it on a limited basis, they've still crossed a line that is putting the church into a position that applies rightly to Israel. All right? The covenants between Yahweh Elohim and Israel. That includes the new covenant. Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. We are in Christ, which means we're not party to the covenant. We are in Christ, the mediator of the covenant. And so it's no surprise that 2 Corinthians says we are ministers, servants of the new covenant. It's not made with us. It's like trying to find out where our invitations are to the wedding supper of the Lamb. We're not getting invitations to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Does that shock you? No, we're not invited because we're sending out the invitations. <laughs> okay? You know, if you're getting married, do you invite yourself? No, your wedding guests get the invitations. You're the one giving the invitations. Similar concept. All right, so these laborers, notice, they are not party to that original covenant. Not party to it. And I would say, if you're going to view this 
with a dispensational lens, then you can see typology in this parable that relates to Israel and their covenant agreements of service, which is merit-based, work-based. What do we earn? What do we deserve? How do we obey according to the contract? And a grace approach that says, I'm serving and whatever you choose is all grace. It's your standard of righteousness. It's your wisdom. It's your glory. And I think you see the distinction there if you can view this parable in with a dispensational lens. All right. Then on a point four, then we have the slugs. I'm convinced these guys are slugs. Um, The 11th hour laborers. These are the guys at five o'clock. And uh, (laughs) what have they been doing all day? All right. The 11th hour laborers, notice, they are uniquely questioned as to their idleness. Uniquely questioned as to their idleness in verse 6. About the 11th hour, he went around and found others standing around. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? Now, the term idle occurs before verse 6. In fact, uh, in the, the third hour group, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. So they're not, it's not unique that they are idle. Um, the term idle is not found in verse 5, but that's really an abbreviated expression, so you could infer it. Um, so the third hour guys, they are idle. The, I think it's inferred that same thing with the sixth and ninth. They're the idle, meaning they're not employed. They're, they're waiting to be employed. But then, but they're not questioned about it. He doesn't, he doesn't challenge them. He doesn't ask them to explain themselves. The third hour laborers are not asked to explain themselves. He just sees them there and, he's, and he um, invites them to come work. I will, uh, whatever is right, I will give to you. And so they went. And same thing with the sixth hour and the ninth hour. Whatever is right, I will give to you. And so they went. But the eleventh hour is different. About the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? He didn't question the other groups, but he does question this group. And they said to him, well, nobody hired us because no one hired us. Really? Where were you the first four times I came by here hiring people? <laughs> okay. I think uh, their excuse is lame. The claim to no one hiring is hard to swallow because he's been there four times. Their claim to no one hiring is hard to swallow. You know, uh, you know we see similar things. With a worldly approach, oh, well, can't find work. Boo-hoo, woe is me. Are you really looking? Or is there work that uh, you find to be demeaning or beneath you or you're not willing? You know, there is work, but not according to your standard of pride. In other words, you're not hungry enough yet. (laughs) Okay. Um, It's lame because he's been there four different times. He was there at 6 a.m., 9 a.m., noon, 3 o'clock. Just two hours ago he'd been there. And uh, and I find it interesting. And something else. He never promises them even so much as the standard of rightness. He doesn't say whatever is right. He just says, get in there and do some work. You notice that? He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. 
He says, get in there and start working. <laughs> and they evidently do because uh, when evening comes, he starts to pay them. He begins with his last group. And uh, we're told in verse 9 that they, they were actually hired at the 11th hour and they worked for an hour. And when we see the whiners complaining, the whiners say, look, these last men have worked only one hour and you made them equal to us. So, but he never promised them a thing. He just said, you get in there. I find that interesting. Point B then, this single hour group is ordered into the vineyard without any reference to righteousness. There's no reference to what he will give them. He doesn't say, oh, whatever is right, I'll give you. He just orders them, get in there and get to work. And I find that interesting. And you would think, and if you want to think of this in terms of a timeline and all the rest, then you've got, perhaps you could view this in terms of a uh, of the tribulational stage of the age of Israel. If you want to think in terms of um, the... Uh, the final age of Israel's stewardship. Remember, the dispensation of Israel has different ages. The age of promise, the age of law, the age of the uh, incarnation of Jesus Christ during His earthly ministry. The final age of Israel is the age of tribulation. Now, how long is that going to last? Just seven years in terms of the, the final 70th week of Daniel, that final seven years. And, of course, could be a period of time between the rapture and the start of that seven years. But the point being, it's going to be a very finite period of time. There's only one hour left in the day. Okay. So how much can they really do for the kingdom of God? How much service can they really offer? How much? Well, what's interesting is that tribulational generation. I'm talking about the 144,000 faithful evangelists. I'm talking about the, the martyrs of the uh, time of Jacob's trouble. They're going to be heroes. They're going to they're do things for the, for the sake of Jesus Christ uh, in the in the face of Satan, in the face of Antichrist, in the face of all the Gentile nations surrounding Jerusalem. Um, and they're going to bear some incredible fruit. The numbers saved during that seven-year span are, are uncountable from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, see. And so a tremendous revival that coincides with the uh, the uniquely, the historically unique affliction that these Jewish believers will go through. So if you, if you again, if you're going to view this parable on a dispensational framework and you know, with that lens, then clearly the, this, these 11th hour laborers would represent that final last little group that's called to service right before payday. Okay. Thinking of the millennium, of course, as payday. Right now. Um, just ordering them in. And what are they promised, or what are they going to? What? Uh, how much fruit can they bear compared to, you know, Noah, a preacher of righteousness who, for 120 years, ministered in in building the ark. Man, there's a guy that's laid up some treasures, right? 120 years of preaching versus this last group right before payday who has a very short hour. A very tiny hour, and you think, what? Uh, what are they going to really? Be, what are they going to lay up in heaven in only an hour? All right, but keep in mind, 
what we think of as long versus short, what the Father thinks of in terms of assignments, maybe two uh, entirely different things. All right, point five then. The foreman was ordered to pay the five groups of laborers in reverse order. And this was so that the point could be made. The foreman was ordered to pay the five groups of laborers in reverse order. Mosaic law, by the way, demands that you have to pay the man uh, on the day in which he works, that uh, you could not withhold a man's wages from him. And so if he worked today, you pay him today. And um, But it doesn't stipulate that, you know, first come, first served. You pay the early guys first. It doesn't say anything like that. So the, uh, the, And to make the point and to teach the principles, these last guys are going to get paid first. And they're going to get a whole day's pay for just a single for just a single uh, hour worth of work. And then the, the guys that work three hours, they're going to get the full denarius. And the guys that work six hours are going to get the full denarius. The guys that work nine hours get the full denarius. And all of that is grace. It's just generosity. It's because the landowner wants to. Does he have to? No, but he wants to. And so we see just from the standpoint of his perspective... Uh, which would you rather serve in? Do you want to serve in the have-tos or the want-tos? Okay. He has to pay the, the first group, the early group. He has to pay them the denarius. Because that's what the covenant contract agreement is. That's the have-to. But the third hour, sixth hour, ninth hour, eleventh hour, he's under no have-tos whatsoever. And he can pay them what he wants to. And that's, I wouldn't trade that for anything. I wouldn't trade the have-tos for the want-tos. Are you kidding me? You know, think about tithing. and Under law in the Old Testament, tithing, you have to give your 10%. But what is it under grace giving? The principles of grace giving in 2 Corinthians 8 and 2 Corinthians 9 and the other New Testament epistles. Do we have a have to for grace giving in the dispensation of the church? No. Not a have to. It's a want to. What do you want to give? As a man is purposed in his heart, so let him give. For God loves the cheerful giver, not grudgingly or under compulsion. For God loves the cheerful giver. You and I live in the want to's. We had a whole study on the have-tos versus the want-tos in uh, 1 Corinthians. Uh, go ahead and get those notes off the website if you want. Re- review those. It's called Voluntarily Against My Will. The difference between the have-tos and the want-tos. And uh spells it out in a, pretty good, uh, in a pretty good way. Notice, though, as we go through here... Um, call the laborers and pay them their wages. And, and the foreman is interesting. He's not The vocabulary is kind of... Uh, he's not a steward, but he's the foreman. And there's stewards and managers, guardians and managers. Remember in Galatians it says uh, when we were under the law, we were under guardians and managers. And there's a, a tandem between stewards and, and foremen. And this isn't a steward. This is a foreman here, but more detail I want to get into today. Uh, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group until the first. So now notice, when those hired about the 11th hour came, each one received a denarius. And so here's these one-hour guys, and they're getting a whole day's work for just an hour. I mean, a whole day's pay for just an hour of work. And, and then we skip ahead in verse 10 to when those who hired first came. So we have to kind of imagine in between verse 9 and in between verse 10 there, what was the reaction on the part of the, the other guys? Okay. The third hour, the sixth hour, and the ninth hour laborers offered no complaints. They weren't complaining. At least not that the text records. The story doesn't tell. The third hour, sixth hour, and ninth hour laborers offered no complaints. 
for what the Lord's generosity to the eleventh hour laborers didn't offer no complaints. They don't care. The ninth hour guys, they work three hours. And and do you hear them grumbling that they only got a denarius? Yeah, they got a denarius for three hours worth of work. And they're not complaining that the one hour guys got the same denarius they did. Understand because they they understood that they worked on a grace basis. They worked on a whatever is right with you basis. Not under law, not under obligation. Okay? Whatever is right. And for them it was more than right. It was generous. Now, technically, if they want to be weasels about it, could they have complained? And said, Oh, it's not fair. I worked three hours and he worked one hour. And we got paid the same. Well, the point, they couldn't, though, not rightly, because they only worked three hours, not twelve. So if they complain about it not being fair, then there's others for which it would be even less fair, right? The six-hour guys would complain about the three-hour guys. The nine-hour guys would complain about the six-hour guys and the three-hour guys and the one-hour guy, okay? The truth is, is that none of them can complain because none of it's fair anyway. All of it is very unfair as a grace provision. And that's the, really, the, the gist of the story here. We don't, uh, we don't often think of grace as unfair, but it is. Grace is not fair. God saved you by grace, and guess what? That wasn't fair. Because fair, righteous judgment would be to throw you into the lake of fire. That would be fair. Okay, we always think of fair on the on the deficit side of things, but we don't think about fair on the grace side of things. And it's still just as unfair that he saved you. That's unfair. You bet. Thank you, God, for not being fair. <laughs> Thank you for being safe, uh, a great uh, full of grace. Thank you for saving me on a grace basis, not based on what I've earned and deserved. All right. And the fairness involved, of course, is the fairness of imputing my sins to Christ's account and pouring out his wrath upon the person of Jesus Christ. So the third hour, sixth hour, and ninth hour laborers offer no complaints for what the Lord's generosity to the eleventh hour laborers and express no dissatisfaction for the grace that they themselves received. In other words, not grumbling about what others got. That's envy. And they're not grumbling about what they got. That's jealousy. Okay? Difference between jealousy and envy. And if you don't have, if you're focused on grace, then both are wonders. If you're focused on self or legalism, then you got issues both directions. You you grumble about what they got, and you grumble about what you got. Both sides, you have no no satisfaction at all. Legalism gives you no satisfaction. Okay, either towards others or towards self. Grace lets you celebrate both the blessings that others have and the blessings that you have. If you're grace-oriented, see, grace orientation allows both. But the early morning laborers accuse the Lord of being unrighteous. You're not being fair. Even though the terms of their covenant were never established on the basis of righteousness. They accused him of being unfair, but they were not in a fair relationship to begin with. They were in a legal relationship to begin with. He didn't tell them, whatever is right, I will pay you. He said, one denarius. And they said, okay. 
the early morning laborers accused the Lord of being unrighteous, even though the terms of their work covenant were never established on the basis of righteousness. Please, please understand that. It's only with the other group that he said, whatever is right, I will give to you. They function on the basis of righteousness, on leaving themselves in his standard for righteousness. The first group never approached it on a righteous basis. They approached it on a works basis. One day, one denarius. (laughs) Can you accuse anyone of being unfair when there was never a basis for fairness between the two parties anyway? If you're not, if your relationship is not on that basis, then it's wrong to, uh, to accuse the other of violating a basis that didn't exist in the first place. I could, uh, you know, how, how could I accuse you of violating a contract if you and I aren't in, under contract with each other? Um, you know, I, I can't violate my uh, marital vows with anyone other than Sharon. Because she's the only one I'm in the marital vows with. Bad example. Uh, <laughs> let me find another illustration. All right. They're accusing him of being unfair. But their business dealings with him were never on the basis of fairness. They were never on the basis of righteousness. They were on the basis of contractual agreements. And the truth is, is he is fair to what they contracted, to what they agreed with. He says, I have done you no wrong. I am not in violation. I am doing you no wrong. There is nothing unjust about the one denarius they received because that's what they contracted for. That is their works covenant approach. And it's fulfilled. They fulfilled their end. He's fulfilling his end. If they want to get angry, they should get angry over the fact that they entered into a, a works covenant agreement to begin with. All right, there's probably other ways to illustrate that, but um, if that was never the basis of their relationship, then how can they accuse him of... of uh, anyway. Point six. Here's the thing. One of the biggest uh, complaint, you've made them to be equal to us. They have a complaint about the equality. Equality is abhorrent to those who view themselves superior. <laughs> These last men have worked only one hour. You have made them equal to us. That's their real complaint. What have we done? We, we, we've borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. We deserve more. Equality is abhorrent to those who view themselves superior. Exaltation of the lowly and bringing down the high and the mighty is even more unthinkable to the sons of pride. But this principle forms the core for understanding the angelic conflict. What this parable is teaching us is really the essence of what the angelic conflict is even all about. The idea that these 
come along latelys are the same as us or worth more than us? It's not just equality. You know, on a, on a per hour basis, <laughs> they're, they're worth one denarius an hour. You're only worth one twelfth of a denarius an hour on the, on the, on the per hour pay scale, right? Now, we've, we've, we've illustrated a couple times now in terms of Israel and the church as a contrast. Put the angels into the picture now. And understand what the angels would, would consider us. From their creation realm to our creation realm. They are the first. And they are preeminent in might. They are preeminent in power. Humans are the last. When you're describing the first shall be last, the last first, the older shall serve the younger. That the angels were created, aren't they all not ministering spirits sent out to render service for those who will inherit salvation? They were designed to be the servants to the saved. And um, so there's an angelic understanding here as well. But the idea of being exalted, the exaltation of the lowly. The idea that the lowly are going to be brought up or that the high are going to be brought down. Ooh, they don't like that either because we're superior. <laughs> Probably should have broken this down into a couple of different points. That's all right. We'll leave it one great big long point six. Exaltation of the lowly and bringing down the high and the mighty is even more unthinkable to the sons of pride. And I, I wanted to keep that generic. I think sons of pride addresses fallen angels. It addresses Pharisees. It addresses legalistic believers regardless of your dispensation and stewardship. What does it say in 1 Peter 5.5? 5, 5? James 4.6 God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. He will exalt you at the proper time. Whereas, uh, I didn't put it on there, but Job... 41, a description of Leviathan. He's king over all the sons of pride. You recognize that Satan is the, the top uh, pride uh, individual that motivates all other satanic pride and rebellion against God's plan. Luke 1.52, Mary understood this when Gabriel first shows up and says, uh, you are the woman of the seed of the woman promise. All of humanity since Eve has been looking forward to the coming of the seed of the woman. And the Virgin Mary is told she's the woman. And she's humbled. Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord. My spirit is rejoiced in God my Savior. For He has had regard for the humble state of His bond slave. Mary understands she doesn't deserve to be the mother of our Savior. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. How many generations have there been? Sixty or more from Adam to Jesus? Sixty is a good ballpark number. Sixty is what we have recorded in the genealogy list anyway. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is His name. I haven't deserved it. I haven't done great things for God. God's done great things for me. His mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear Him. Humility motivates, of course, fear, the fear of the Lord. He has done mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their hearts. 
He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. I think it's remarkable. I think Mary and Joseph, got Joseph's record in Matthew, you got Mary's record here in Luke, they had a framework to understand humility in the plan of God in an amazing way. You know, God didn't just pick some dumb girl off the streets to be the mother of Jesus. She had some doctrine. She had some growth. Her parents had grounded her under, under truth. She knew clearly that pride goes before the fall, that God exalts the humble. And there it is. All right, Old Testament scriptures, of course, including Psalm 138, verse 6, Proverbs 3, verse 34. For the Lord, for though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly. But the haughty he knows from afar. You know, think how high and mighty you are, or you think you are. How much higher and mightier is God? And yet he humbles himself to communicate with us, to relate to us, to save us, to fellowship with us. And if God will do that for us, why are we so prideful that we won't stoop or diminish ourselves or humble ourselves? And so we have it there. The Septuagint of Proverbs 3.34 is where the direct quote comes from for James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, 5. But even the uh, base Hebrew text of Proverbs 3, 34 communicates the uh, truth here. The curse, uh, though he scoffs at scoffers, yet he gives grace to the afflicted. He is opposed to the proud. He scoffs at the scoffers. Not only is he opposed to them, but he turns it upon their own head. That's opposed to the proud. Scoffing at the scoffers. Yet he gives grace to the afflicted, or he gives grace to the humble. That's James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, 5. Point seven. Just two more. Like I said, we're going to get through this in a single session. Those who serve on the basis of works and merit are susceptible to envy. Are you wrapped up in legalism? All that's going to do is feed your envy. It's going to feed your pride. Because you're going to view yourself as pretty darn good. <laughs> yeah. I'm the best legalist in town. And I can look down my long nose at everybody else. And they're not nearly half a legalist I am. <laughs> Those who serve on the basis of works and merit are susceptible to envy. Those who serve on the basis of faith and righteousness are open to the grace of God towards themselves and others. Alright. Now, you know, goodness, I said we're going to do this all in one hour, but... We should spend the time to work our way through Titus chapter 3. That gives us a wonderful... We'll do this next week. Titus chapter 3 and work our way through the outline there for being open to the grace of God. Happy about what happens when other people are blessed. Not grumbling. Oh, well. Why do they, why do they deserve that? I, I should get that. Okay. It's not about what they deserve. It's called grace. It's not about what you deserve. If you understood grace, you'd be able to rejoice. We'll spell this out a little bit more too. We also have to take the time to detail point eight. This parable must be aligned with the additional parables that clearly portray eternal inequality. Don't walk away from our story today and say, oh, well, we're all going to be equal when we get to heaven. Whether we're first hour, third hour, sixth hour, eleventh hour, doesn't matter. We're all going to get the same denarius. We're all going to have the same reward. No. Okay. 
you might be led to think that if this was the only parable related to uh, such things. But I would put forth this parable does not relate to such things. This parable is simply the way to illustrate the first shall be last, the last shall be first. There are other parables that illustrate eternal rewards, including parables of one, five, and ten talents, and parables in which case the one who does not even return a single talent, the one he has is taken away from him and given to the one who has ten. There is a lot of inequality in glory as it relates to the eternal rewards of what has been um, laid up in heaven, the treasure that's been laid up in heaven. And, and one very glaring one is in Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. So we'll spend the time next week going through that as well. This parable must be aligned with additional parables. In other words, you compare Scripture with Scripture. You align them. You put them side by side. You compare them. You contrast them. You see not to not to compete them one against the other and say, well, one is true, the other is false. You align them to illustrate that both are true. And this parable is true, so there is a, an equality factor we've got to recognize. And this parable is true, so there's an inequality factor we have to realize. Okay? Equality factors, we all get saved. Praise God for that. Inequality factor is that there are degrees of reward that are based upon the degrees of faithfulness and the work that's done here on this earth. And that's a not on an equal basis. Okay? So we're all equally saved. But we're not all equally rewarded. And there's going to be, you've got to put both parables side by side to understand that both are true. All right? So we'll, uh, we'll spend the time next week. We'll work our way through Titus 3. We'll work our way through Matthew 25. And we will uh, kind of spell out the last details on this. All right. Didn't quite make it in one session, but two sessions then to uh, wrap up the 11th hour laborers. Father, thank you for your truth, for your faithfulness. Pray that we would understand, uh, Father, in, uh, in so many respects, the um, principles that we need to learn with respect to time and the assignments you've given us. And Father, we cannot be boastful if uh, we've been at this longer than other folks. Maybe, uh, maybe we've been engaged in the Christian walk for uh, a longer period of time and somebody else who just got saved... Uh, this morning or earlier this year, maybe maybe they are rookies. That's fine. A father, um, it just means there's more expectations of me. Uh, there's more expectations uh, for those to whom much has been given. That I should uh, not view anything in terms of superiority because I've been serving longer. And uh, also, Father, I can't get prideful in the sense that I think I've deserved more. You expect more. I should be able to come alongside these younger brothers and sisters in Christ and, and uh, bear more of the load and show them how to do things and, and um, train them up in the, in the older believer capacity. So many applications we can make with respect to these things. But Father, we want to recognize that it's all grace. It's a, it's a privilege, Father. I thank You that, that You saved me as a child and You didn't save me as an old man. That uh, in the course of my earthly walk, Father, I'm not a, an 11th hour laborer who was saved shortly before physical death. But I was saved uh, young, real young. And uh, it's not a thing to be prideful over because it's all grace. Thank you, Father, for saving me. Thank you for letting me serve. Thank you for letting me bear fruit. I don't deserve any of this. 
But Father, so many different applications, things to think about, things to chew on. And I thank You that in this one story, in this one parable, we can just dwell and, and uh, fellowship and chew and let the Word of Christ dwell richly within us, Father. Help us to see other applications whereby we can see principles that this simple story communicates. And I thank You, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.